Hello and welcome to the 15th WEMcast live session uh, with me, Owen Walker, uh, WEM Trauma Lead. So this session is titled Thriving versus Surviving. So it's a real honour today, actually. This session is really quite unique. Um, so today we've got two guests who've, had, uh, who've gone through um, absolute life-changing injuries, but truly embodied uh, through that process the spirit of thriving in the face of adversity. So in May 2009, Dan Richards lost his right arm and shoulder in a motorcycle uh, accident. And in 2014, Victoria Lebrecht lost her left leg under a lorry while cycling to work. Uh, both have gone on to navigate the highs and lows of rehabilitation and adapting our lives for the better. Uh, so in this session, what I really wanted to do is, is get their organic story um, and then contrast that with a little bit of uh, footage from the BBC, which has shown about both, but really get their highs and lows uh, and, and some of the, some of the take-home messages from, really, from goal setting and some of the fantastic things that they've gone on to do. So these really are two truly inspirational accounts. Um, that testify that the, the human spirit can achieve anything despite the odds. Um, so Dan and Victoria are with us today um, to unpack these stories. So welcome, guys. Dan, what I'd like to do is 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 just if I could just get your a, a summary of your organic story, just a little bit of background on that day in uh, in May two thousand and nine, and then we'll play the video. Yeah, sure. Hi everyone. Um, so my basically to summarize um so i was brought up in a military family um i was kind of always around the military from a very very young age and it's actually i was eight years old when i told mum and dad when i'm old enough i'm gonna i'm gonna join the army and be just like dad and that's exactly what i did um so i left to join the army i'll the after i turned 17 um joined a regiment called the king's football horse artillery uh, so took part in all the various ceremonies of state trooping the colour, Queen's birthday parade, and so on. I had aspirations really to train as a farrier. Um, I knew nothing about horses at the time. And the good thing with the military is you can know a lot about nothing, but training it, training something can become really, you know, become really good at it. And so that was kind of my my career aspirations, if you like. But for me personally, um, there were things, there were boxes that I wanted to tick before I settled down with that. Like for me, I couldn't justify being in the military and even if only once, like never doing any sort of green army stuff. So I wanted to do an operational tour and some adventurous training. And so in 2007, um, I went off to Afghanistan, um, did just over six months there, came back and then spent six and a half weeks, five, five or six weeks uh, trekking through Nepal and then up into the Trans Himalaya which is amazing. And then literally, um, I got back from Nepal in like, November 2008. Um, and then in May 2009, um, I just finished doing a, a rehearsal for Troop in the Colour. It was a Saturday, the 30th of May. And then Sunday, the 31st of May, um, uh, that's when we became friends, Owen. You flew out to me in your helicopter. I crashed my motorbike, riding back to my barracks. And... Um, yeah, the uh, the injury load was quite substantial, as, yeah, as you've told me. Uh, two bilateral talus fractures, um, radius and ulna, open fracture, uh, and then, um, bit, you know, all this, I've amputated on site pretty much, and um, yeah, a partial a partial laceration of my internal jugular. So, 
Wow. So a massive injury load, really, Dan. Um, mm. Massive injury load. Um, so what I thought I'd do, just for everyone who's watching, um, I know these guys have seen this a million times, but just really, just quickly play um, a video which really, really um, summarizes the, the injury load and just that snapshot time, if that's okay. So I'm just going to play the video just to give people an idea. King Soup is a I knew from a really early age, eight years old, that I wanted to join the army and I knew exactly where I wanted to be, where I was going. The King's Troop is a mounted regiment and we take part in all the parades in London, so Troop in the Colour, Queen's Birthday Parade. I turn up on my first day, get my room, get most of my uniform issued to me and then I am given a, a, a bugle. This is, you're going to be a trumpet, Richards. I was like, cheers, nice one. I've had enough time blowing a whistle. Good luck getting anything out of this. Yeah. <laughs> Sunday, the 31st of May, was a normal Sunday routine of the troop. I got on my motorbike to go out and get something to eat. I was in the outside lane of a dual carriageway and I'd slammed my brakes on. I was thrown into the central reservation, um, shoulder first. The paramedic um, didn't think I'd survive the journey to the hospital. He actually thought I would be dead in the road. I remember waking up. And I thought I was back in my barracks. I remember looking over to the right side of my body and where body should have been was the pillow. I was just thinking, you know, what have I done to deserve this? So to help myself recover, I started setting myself little goals. You know, for me, it was all about winning my independence back. I actually returned back to my regiment and I thought I'm gonna learn to ride a horse again. I became the first amputee rider in the King Street. I stayed in the army for three years. Over that time, I was watching the new people come in and I was watching them progress with their careers. And then I started to go, what have I really got to look forward to? I served my last day in the British army in September, 2012. I found the year out of the army worse than actually losing my arm itself. And I tried, yeah, I tried to, I tried to end it all. I tried to end my own life. What stopped me was the thought of my mum finding me. And that's, that, that's kind of when I, I said, right, I need help. And so the last five years, I've been rebuilding my life. June 2016, I took part in uh, a big battlefield bike ride, 370 miles across Northern France. The sense of achievement I got out of just doing that one ride, I was like, you know, cycling's my thing. I'm going to be a cyclist. No hands. This journey that I'm on now with the Invictus Games is a massive privilege. Thousands of other people have applied for this and I'm one of 72 that's got it. Losing my arm and shoulder is absolutely, unequivocally, the best thing that's ever happened to me. You know, I've done more with my life like this than I ever would have done had it not happened. And the voice in your head telling you you can't do something is a liar. You can do anything you want. It's powerful, absolutely powerful, Dan. Um, I think what we'll do as well is we'll we'll really dig into some of that, that those experiences in the Evictus Games uh, in a short while, just to get your first-hand experience. But that was powerful. Sure. So, so Victoria, just turning to you. Um, so, would it be all right just to summarise a little bit around um, your your experience building up to 2014 and then 2014 itself? Yeah, of course. And also, Dan, like, I hadn't realised like, what you've 
been through so much and like that's so <laughs> it's so amazing what you've done and um I think like powerful that you, you know you were in a motorbike crash and then you know I found cycling amazing for me like before I had my my crash um and it's just so nice to see you get back into cycling so I just want to say that quickly before I start talking Thank you very about much. it yeah, yeah no it's, it's really amazing and just um not to be patronizing at all but just like well done and I'm so happy that you found cycling as um like that kind of release and joy because that, that's kind of what it used to give me and I did it did it in a very different way because I was 24 when I got run over and I did it just as kind of commuting and just as a way to get around London um just to get to work really and like go to different places I needed to but I like I I did feel like quite passionate about it because it was somewhere like something to um you know to exercise properly and you feel amazing and you feel very um liberated when you're cycling I think so yeah so for me I was I was cycling to work it was December 2014 it was a very sunny day it was like a Monday morning and I was going from um East London towards um my job in Farringdon and it's like it was only like a 20 minute cycle it was a very casual cycle really um and I was about maybe like yeah 400 meters from my office and um you know yeah was cycling to get over the junction and then got run over by a lorry and um yeah very very difficult thing and like I think I'm generally considered a like medical marble (laughs) because of like what happened to me I just if it had happened like anywhere else in the country or um you know a few months earlier I definitely wouldn't be alive but um they very luckily um yeah, my, my life was saved. Fantastic. Absolutely. And um, so what I thought I'd do now, Victoria, just to just to kind of shine a light on that and sharpen it up, maybe for people who are watching this, is just to show a very similar, just three three minute clip, if that's okay. Mm. Well, the accident, I was a normal 26 year old. All of that changed after being run over. Forgiveness is really important. And I don't think it's helpful to, you know, hold on to hate. It was 9am, it was a sunny, sunny day. I was cycling to work and I was coming up to a junction and a left-turning lorry knocked me over. On the 8th of December 2014, Vicky Lebrecht's life changed forever when her pelvis and left leg were crushed by an HGV. Vicky? I know it is, unless this is going to take all the pain away, okay? I know. So we're going to take that pain away for you, okay? We're going to look after you, don't worry. Vicky was bleeding to death. Paramedics decided to perform a risky procedure at the roadside in a desperate attempt to save her life. They put a balloon up your aorta, which is the main blood vessel in your body, to stop the bleeding. So it stops the bleeding to the lower half of your body to keep the rest of you alive. I was the second person which they managed to do it successfully out of hospital for, and ultimately it saved my life. In hospital, Vicky had 13 surgeries and doctors had no option but to amputate her left leg. Recovering from an accident like this, it takes a really long time. So after I left the rehabilitation hospital, um, I was at, I had to go back to live with my mum. It's just been 
quite a long and difficult process to get my life back together. Going from someone that's really active and is able to do everything and is completely independent and not reliant on anyone is very difficult and really um, life-changing. It's, it's hard to describe what that's like and I think until it's happened to you it's difficult to understand. A year after the accident the case came to court. Vicky met the lorry driver for the very first time and made her amazing decision to forgive him. When I met him, I didn't actually realise who he was exactly, but he kind of came up to me and apologised for what had happened, and then we had a really long hug, which was really nice. Ooh. Sorry. <laughs> Ultimately, people make mistakes, and sometimes these mistakes don't have any consequences, and sometimes these mistakes have really awful, you know, life-changing consequences. He had made this mistake, which had these terrible consequences, and was just clearly so sorry for, for what he'd done. Vicky now meets other young trauma victims to help them during their recovery and campaigns for cycle safety. In 2014, over 21,000 cyclists were injured in accidents on Britain's roads. Of those, 113 people were killed. Vicky is determined that things should change. It's a massive shame that cyclists keep having these really terrible accidents. Cycling is something that's really, really good for you. And a lot of the de these deaths are preventable. So anything that they can do in terms of segregating cycle routes and making the junction safer, the longer they leave it, the more deaths and really serious accidents are going to happen. Vicky continues to rebuild her own life step by step. There's lots of little things that are still difficult. I think I take things a lot less for granted now. So, you know, going from someone to being unable to move or get out of bed and then being able to, be, to start doing those things again, go back to work, I just feel really lucky that I'm able to do those things. And I feel grateful that um, I'm still alive. All the little things that, that can, you know, get you down or stress you out, it just makes you realize that they're not really important. And the important things are your health and your family and the people that you love. That's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's so funny to watch that back though, because it's it feels like that was like a good three years ago, and I feel like so much has changed. So it's just funny to yeah. watch it. I haven't seen that for so long. <laughs> Every time I watch that, um, Vicky, I'm like, don't cry, don't cry, yeah. don't cry. <laughs> I just, yeah, it's so moving. It really is quite moving. Um, okay, just so. Just before you carry on there, just watching Vicky's story there and see you um, do things with road safety and cycling. I'd love to get involved in that if I can, in any way I can. I cycle in London all the time, so... Well, Dan, I was thinking when I was watching your thing, I was like, I need to get Dan involved with road piece. <laughs> Which is where I work now, so like, there's going to be some conversations after this, I think. <laughs> yeah, no worries, absolutely. Sorry, Owen. Do a bit of a collaboration? Yeah, I think a bit of collaboration is required, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so let's just th the first question really I wanted to ask to both of you, uh, maybe just because we've seen that that video just just then, uh, Victoria, just maybe to you first. Um, what were the first six months really like for you, just sort of from from start to finish, really after after the injury? Yeah. So, um, they were very very horrible. <laughs> they were really bad. I um. So the first the first three months, so basically, yeah, I got run over. I was in a coma for I think it was like a good week, if not longer. And um, I had, you know, the, the first memories I have like post collision are some like very aggressive, very troubling, like hallucinations whilst I was in intensive care. And I think 
like thinking back on it now, I was trying to like whip out my like cannulas and things like that because <laughs> I was hallucinating so much. Um, and then I was like coming to a little bit in the high dependency unit and having like a bit more surgery on my knee and, and, and things like that. Um, but I think it's difficult because people always think it's like, wow, like, did you wake up and like you realize your leg wasn't there? Like, how did you feel? And it doesn't feel that way at all. Like you're so completely, they keep you so completely out of it. Because obviously if they stop that, you'd be in so much pain. So you're, you're very, very sedated. I had very amazing support networks. My family and my family, in fact, was so worried about um, me waking up and like realizing my leg wasn't there. So they were kind of like constantly there and just checking um, that I was okay. So I have I have a lot of memories of like me hallucinating a lot and also like my family being around me. Um, and yeah, it was it was essentially it was about it was yeah two and a bit months at the Royal London, um, and it was like a stay in intensive care stay in high dependency unit and then like quite a good long stay on the trauma ward um which was very difficult I think um you know there's there's photos of me like almost in intensive care where I look the same as I was before the collision and then the photos of me from the trauma ward I've lost so much weight and I look so unwell because I think my body was taking so long and like it was taking so much energy to recover from um what had happened to me and um, yeah, it just took so much energy. I had no appetite and like I lost a lot of muscle mass and like I had a lot of nerve injuries around my pelvis um, and in my legs as well. So my muscles were never going to be the same. So the photos of me kind of like in the trauma ward, I kind of looked like a baby bird, looked very weird. And, um, and, then, and then following that, I then, um, so I was on the trauma ward and then I'd had like 13 operations by that point or something. Obviously lost my leg. I had lots of like pelvic, pelvic um surgery and then um yeah so the crash happened in December 2014 like February 2015 I moved back to my mum's house and that was also so difficult like I remember the the journey from the Royal London to going to my mum's house was so traumatic because <laughs> it's kind of like I was in this new environment when all of this had happened to me and I'd kept it within that environment and then having to then like go back into London and like the, you know I, well, I was living in Mile End before the um, crash happened so I, I, I knew like the road <laughs> the Royal London was on quite well and then to leave and then like be back on that road and I was in so much pain still because my pelvis was so had like loads of bars in it and it was just like just like a metal work really and then had to be transported home and that was so difficult in itself also to then be back in an environment that you know and you know how to um you know transport yourself around it when when you were able body to then come back into it like being carried into my mum's home with like a hospital bed in the dining room really intense and um very difficult and I was at waiting I was waiting essentially the reason I got I got taken taken back to my mum's house is because I was waiting for a space at a rehabilitation hospital and I think I was one of those cases particularly because of the nerve damage around my hips I think like a, normally like a through knee amputation yes it's very difficult and horrible but if you've got your glutes if you've got like your quads and like the abdo whatever it is the um I can't remember I always forget them the ones that like support your hips and support your inner thigh <laughs> never remember um, you got those... <laughs> yeah, your, hip, 
hip flexors. No, no, hip flexors are at the front. Hip flexors at the front. It's the um. Anyway, <laughs> we'll pick it up after. But um, yeah, they they weren't work, working properly around the the left side. Um, so I think I was like considered to be a bit of a kind of like more high need case, I guess. Um, yes, abductors, abductors. Thank you so much, Lucy Sanger. <laughs> You're very correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, a bit more of a high need case. Um, and very luckily, they were waiting for a space because um, Roehampton, that's like the, I think probably in terms of like civilian amputation, it's probably like one of the best ones in terms of like what rehab they can give you. And um, they, they've only got 15 inpatient beds for amputees. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of them are taken up by diabetics. So they do, I think they've only got like one or two trauma beds. Um, so yeah, so then I uh, was waiting for that at my mum's house and then um, got admitted there three weeks later. Um, and then that was also very difficult because then it was kind of like being in a wheelchair, but you've got a broken pelvis. And it was so uncomfortable for me to be sat down. Like when I was at the Royal London, the, like most of the time that I was with nurses or physios was like just trying to get me sat up. And it was like horribly painful. It was so painful just being sat on like a pelvis that is utterly shattered and has got had like had like a I had um bars that were under my skin like holding my pelvis together to get it to heal properly like being sat on that when, when like a lot of your muscle mass has gone so painful and then going to then the rehabilitation hospital where maybe they don't have so much of like the understanding of like what's happened to you um and also being like was lying down in bed for three months <laughs> like so you, like it'd be difficult for anyone if you've been like lying down in three beds and then going to Roehampton and doing five hours of physio every day I remember like the first day I did it I was just like completely horizontal in bed for, <laughs> for 12 hours afterwards like absolutely um yeah completely uh like shaken shaken by that I was there for nearly yeah nearly three months um and they got me walking and like I think it got quite apparent to them maybe not so much to me but it was quite apparent to them that like I'd lost a lot of muscle mass and my walking was going to be um really impacted by that um but also got a video um, um oh yeah 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 sure really quickly show you a quick video of your real bit also tell me if I'm talking too much I feel like I might have been joining yeah. How do you stop it? Just press the button again. Okay, I'm going to do you for the back now. You can see that yeah, you're still catheterized, you're in pain, yeah. you know, you're learning to walk. Um super so thin. Yeah, I look it's weird to watch that because I look so thin and like that what 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 that video was is they before they make your leg you obviously have to do like lots of physio exercises but they 
can't remember what it's called, but it's like a kind of um, essentially a kind of like a, a peg leg, but it's um, got like a kind of inflated rubber thing around it. So you can adjust it for lots of people. And it's just like, a, they just use it to like get you moving your leg forwards and, and back again. Um, but yeah, that's a kind of like early thing, but really amazing. To, like I remember the feeling of, of doing that after being like lying down or in a wheelchair for like four months, like to be able to like stand up and like move your body was, <laughs> was so good. <laughs> yeah, it was so nice. Yeah. So Dan, you, your first six months, just, just from your recollections, um, if you um, could just do those. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've got no memory of the accident happening itself. Um, I think the last vivid memory I got from that day was was pulling away from the traffic lights and then waking up a few days later in hospital, but in the rural London of all places. So, um, I, so my earliest memory from waking up in hospital was um, I had no recollection of an accident whatsoever. Uh, I thought I was back in my back in my barracks, uh, which was St John's Wood at the time, and um, trying to get up out of bed to go and put my bike away, which I thought I'd left out. And mum and dad were in the room as well. And I remember look, opening my eyes and seeing them sort of stood above me. Um, and uh, they sort of told me that I ain't got a bike anymore. So I was adamant someone had pinched it. So, um, and then the doctor came in and said, uh, you know, you've, uh, you've been in a horrific motorcycle accident. Um, and I got the, um, I got the injury load detail, the good news. Um, you've got two, bilateral talus fractures this arm was um had fixators in it suspended up a pole and um and they said yeah your um your left arm's severely broken um and so that was that and then and then i said and then i remember asking my mum's told me this i remember asking the doctor i said am i, am I a vegetable am i gonna am i gonna walk again and um mum said the doctor started to well up so the registrar had to come in and then tell me all over again and um and and then just said but unfortunately after six and a half hours of surgery we were we were unable to save your your right arm and shoulder and um yeah, as you saw in the video a minute ago i remember looking over to my right side of my body and you know where where this should have been this is prosthetic now but where this should have been was the pillow and i didn't have enough skin to cover the old so um i had like a black a black piece of fabric sort of stapled to it with a little pipe sucking all the stuff, all the, all the bad stuff out, all the, all, all the grit and stuff I couldn't get out. Um, and um, I think that's the only time I've really been sort of like visually upset and actually upset about my situation. Um, and I remember, and this is the, the first vivid memory I've got. I've, I've never forgotten this. Um, and... Um, I remember everyone being a little bit sort of upset, you know, as you would be, but, um, and then I just went to the nurse and I said, uh, I said, uh, is the plumbing still there and attached and working? So that's absolutely fine. I said, well, nothing else really matters in, does it? It's a worse off than me. And, uh, but looking back at that moment now, that's the moment I accepted my situation for what it was. Um, um, yeah. I probably put a lot of that down to being in the military um, and having that mindset, I suppose, um, because you know one of the things that's really drummed into you, you know, from the word go, from the minute you start basic training, is being self-reliant and relying on your own abilities to get yourself out of a situation, regardless of what the situation is. And and so I suppose 
in that making that joke, which got a few laughs, obviously, and which is what it was about. Um, it, it gave me the sort of the the mental freedom, if you like, to to focus on basically getting to grips with this new life now of being a man with one arm. I mean, I was right hand dominant, and that's been taken away from me. Um, so in between visiting hours, you know, I was I was learning to write, I was learning to do buttons up. I was at one point I had um, those black those black moon boots on over my uh, over my cast. I don't know what they're called. Um, and uh, I'm sure there's people watching going, oh, moon boots. Um, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I um, I got a handyman came in to do some 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 had some handyman bits and um, he had a drill on him. I said, you've got a drill and some string. He said, what for? I said, I'm going to learn to start tying shoelaces. And my hand was in a cast anyway. I had, to, I had the bones to with some plates and whatnot. Uh, and so I just spent the hours in between visiting hours because there's nothing else to do other than watch TV. Um, um, learning to tie laces, um, learning to write, feed myself and stuff. You know, because up until that point, you know, I was 23 years old when the accident happened. And, um, yeah, up until that point, everything was done, apart from holding a knife or a fork, everything was done right-handed. Um, so it's very, um, very, um, I can't think of the word, frustrating, a lot of it was. Um, but I think the first sort of major thought for me really was, um, was what's the future going to have installed for me? You know, because... As far as I was concerned, I was in the military. That's everything that I wanted to do from an eight-year-old boy. Um, and I didn't know what else I could do, what else I wanted to do. Um, so I made, the, I made the decision that I'm going to go back to the army because uh, that's what I know. That's where I feel I belong. That's where my identity is, you know, and my self-worth, if you like. And, um, and um that was kind of my whole my whole mindset, if you like. And the first goal I ever set was winning my independence back. And I did that from the Royal London Hospital. And that's why I started to learn to write time machine later, just live independently without anyone um, having to do anything for me. Um, and the whole the whole reason behind that was um, I I had to have a, an enema. Um, and once I had it, I wheeled into the toilet, like a, you know, on this commode. And um, they said, when you're finished, just pull the orange cord. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, it's, I, I don't want that. You know, it's, if I can't wipe my own ass, then I, what, I need to work myself. Um, and um, I spent an hour and a half in that, in that bathroom sort of sort myself out. And um, I'm sorry for the colourful language. but um, um, And that was it. I was like, I need my independence back. And so everything... You know, all through hospital, um, and 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 even up to now, even up to today, even though I live completely independently, um, my sole focus was just winning my independence back. Um, and yeah, that's the first the first six months really was uh, Headley Court, um, the Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre. I went from um, when I got moved from the Royal London home was in Swindon at the time. Um, and so I got moved to the Great Western Hospital in Swindon, and then from there I went to Headley Court and just sort of learned 
or sort of learn to live life, you know, like I, like I am now and everything from, because I was completely wheelchair bound, all in all, non-weight bearing for about six months. Um, really? Yeah. Because uh, I had two broken ankles. Um, so oh. whilst they were, whilst they were healing, I, I couldn't stand up or anything. And oh. um, one got reset with pins, which then came out. Because once I started partially weight bearing, um, my ankle locked and I fell over. Um, and on a, on you a, get yourself back up when you got your. Oh, I can't thing. remember that much, but um, <laughs> well, basically the uh, it was the, the the bolts. I think was sort of poking out into the joint a little bit, and I said, "Right, well, let's get them out then." Um, I'll do without oh, those. No. Um, so I had those taken out, and then for me, because I was going back to the army, um, I was. It, it, do, you know, in, in the military, it's um, you have like basic fitness tests, you know, mile and a half run, uh, sit ups and press ups in two minutes. Um, well, I ain't going to be doing any 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 press ups for you know, well, I can't anyway, even even now. But um, I was like, I want to get my mile and a half run, I want to earn my, I want to earn my spot back in the military. I don't just want to be, um, you know, just a malingerer. So, I um. So I started learning, you know, learning to run again. So I used to lock myself into one of those uh, where they just pump it full of air so you can offset your, your body weight. And so I just started getting back to running again and, and it sort of helped with sort of walking and stuff. And and yeah, so six months in rehab at Headley Call, and then I went back to I went back to the King's Troop uh, in the December of the same year on the gradual return to work process. And that's when I uh, excuse me. And that's when I sort of went, right, well, I'm in a, I'm in a regiment with horses and I was riding horses before, I was there to ride a horse then. And so that's what I did. And, and then an opportunity came up shortly afterwards to, to rock climb. And so I took that. And I remember, you know, um, whilst I was rock climbing, I, I became the lead climber of that expedition. And, um, well, that, that, that adventurous training exercise thing. And um, I just remember my first thought was halfway at that rock face in Spain. And I went, do you know what, if I can adapt to life like this as quickly as I have, I've got nothing to worry about. But um, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ruin the rest of the story for, no, for that's anyone, fine. But, that, that's yeah. that's really, that's fine. <laughs> Thank that's really that's really honest and, and really really helpful actually and and uh, re- really intricate as well. So thanks, Dan. So just just Jack uh, Greer's just had to ask a quick question and I'm gonna ask it to you, Vicky, if that's okay. So um did you experience, and then I'll ask it to Dan as well, um, did your experiences connect you with a community of people who've been through similar experiences uh, and did that help with your rehabilitation? Um, yes, it did, thank you. That's a very good question. I feel um, very lucky because um, I was saved ultimately by what um, the London Air Ambulance have done in terms of like advancements in medicine and they did the resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta which is what ultimately saved my life um and but then uh, more than that like the kind of follow-up care because it's ultimately their charity even though they get their doctors from the nhs kind of on loan um they um it's, it's a guy called frank who i think um all of you should probably just like look up because it's so good <laughs> but he's their patient liaison nurse and he um is the most like emotionally intelligent and person that's so good at their job. And his job ultimately is 
to put people, to make patients' lives a bit easier after they've had a horrible traumatic injury. So it's kind of almost a kind of um, OT kind of role, but what he does is so much more than that, which is, um, like for me in particular, it was put me in touch with a guy called Andy who'd lost his leg um, like about three months before me. So he um, came to see me in hospital whilst I was still like completely ultimately like paralyzed in bed. And Andy had, he was a police officer, he lost his leg in a crash. And he um, came to see me and he'd just gone through his rehabilitation. So he was able to like talk to me about like what that process was like, what I could expect from it. Um, We've stayed in touch since actually me and Andy. Um, So yeah, a big part is I think is um, like introducing patients who've got things to learn from other patients. And I'm like so grateful now that Frank will introduce me to, and I've spoken to, you know, lots of other amputee women, because sadly it happens all the time that uh, women will lose their legs in London through a crash. Um, I've spoken to to quite a few women who um, that's happened to. So, um, yeah, no, it's a very positive thing. Yeah, fantastic. Dan, did you get reunited with any people going through the similar circumstances? Um, Do you know what? I found... um... Like not until I went to Headley Court, really. You know, I was meeting guys that had been, uh, you know, blown up and, and wounded on tour and and so on. And um, I, I actually, do you know what? I, I didn't feel I belonged at Headley Court. Um, I, I, I saw myself as inadequate amongst other amputees that had been injured on tour and, and whatnot. So I, I, I thought I was a bit of a fraud, to be honest. And, and um, that's. Uh, it, it took a few guys actually that had lost like legs and so on and um, sort of saying no no that's 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 you don't have that mindset that's that's irrelevant um, but I took a lot of inspiration if you like from um, other people that were there um, going through uh, the, the same the same situation as me and it's quite shared experience. Um, has been at, is absolutely massive. Um, you know, whether you're going through it at the same time, you know, at, at the same level, or if you're further along than somebody else, and vice versa, I think shared experience is is a powerful, powerful tool. Dan, I need to get you like involved with my charity. <laughs> like that's all we're watching. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely all about that. It's all about supporting people through shared. Yeah, def- I think I think if you're in. I think if you're in a position to help somebody and it's not always financial, it's, it's anything. I think mental help is the most important thing above anything else. You know, mental robustness is the absolute, it's, it's, it's the fundamental strongest ability anyone can have, you know, before anything else, because if you're not strong upstairs, then everything else doesn't matter. Um, and, but you know, uh, being not strong upstairs is kind of like that's some people either are like that or from what's happened to them, you know, all of these things. And I think um, shared experience is just like the best way to make sure someone good about yeah. themselves. I think just knowing that someone else understands what you've been through, mm. like regardless of whether like through a shared experience, hopefully, but me, even if their experience isn't that like especially relevant. <laughs> Just the most yeah. I, I don't know about you, but one thing I found is is, is some people have like might have 
for me, I, a few times where I've, I've done talks and stuff and like someone shut their fingers in the door or something and they go, oh, it's really bad, but nothing to what you've had to deal with. And it's like, I know my problem's no bigger or better than anybody else's. Mm. Um, um, just, just, just because we've lost limbs, it doesn't make somebody that's broken the leg yeah. or, 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 or cut their fingers, you know, chopping onions or whatever. Um, it doesn't make doesn't make our problems any different to anybody else. We've all we've we've both had our own um, um, barriers to deal with, um, so I think they're relevant to you. To I think the biggest thing for me in terms of comparison is that there's lots of people that get killed um, in crashes, and I think sometimes it's a bit difficult to like as someone that's been seriously injured. If you're talking to like a parent who's lost someone like as a kind of um, comparison in terms of like how you feel about what's happened to you. I think it's quite different. I think I feel very differently, for example, if like my sister got killed. I would mm. not feel the same way about the driver. I would not feel the same way about the system. I think I'd, I would be perhaps more vengeful. But there's like different, there's different um, approaches in that sense. I think in terms of like injury though, with like within, within that aspect, um, I think you're completely right. I think... Um, and it actually is really interesting when you start looking at like the definitions of serious injury because it goes from like, you know, broken neck and being completely paralyzed the rest of your life to breaking your finger actually qualifies as a serious injury. It's all within that bracket in terms of like how the stats um, describe yeah. it. Um, yeah. But some things that, you know, some injuries are different to different people and actually, you know, breaking your leg, if you haven't got a support network, that's a nightmare. You're probably you might end up homeless. Like lots of people, actually, I think on our streets now are homeless because of like some kind of trauma that then put them on the streets. Mm. Yeah. So just changing tack slightly. Well, actually, just something you both mentioned there, um, because I'd, I'd like to ask you a question in a second, Victoria. Actually, but Dan, from your perspective, um, you mentioned navigating mental health. How was how was and and we saw in the in the video. Some, some of the some of the challenges the mental health challenges you took how did you navigate that because that was a bit of a roller coaster was it not yeah definitely I mean I mine was kind of um my my mental health um issues if you like um didn't sort of come to anything until about three years later when I was discharged from the military and um um, you know, I had my entire identity kind of removed from underneath me and any ounce of self-worth that I had was was gone. And um, I found the readjustment from military life to civilian life uh, impossible to deal with. And, um, you know, I, I spent a whole year trying to find a job, you know, 327 job applications and not so much as an interview or, or um, anything, any networking opportunity from that. And, they run in parallel with that, you know, financially, you know, it's ruined me. Um, I, um, and that's what led to me going to what I really got to look forward to in is, you know, I've been through enough and, 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 I, and I've dealt with it the best way I can, the best way I know how. And um, that for me was my rock bottom became the foundations of which I've rebuilt my life, you know, from scratch. Um, and I suppose in a way, goal setting, uh, is my strongest, my strongest tool in my arsenal, really. Um, you know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, it's, you know, 
um, how did I deal with that? And I was like, I just set goals. And those goals, breaking them down into small achievable wins have been fundamentally life-changing for me. Um, you know, and from my room that day that I tried to end it all, I, um, I, um, I started to go back to London because I'd moved back home to Somerset after I'd left the army um, and lived essentially in my old room, you know, 27 years old, living like a 16-year-old child out of school. Got nothing to show for the 10 years I had in the army and um, I had nothing to move on to or, or couldn't find anything to move on to, you know, through, not through want of trying. Um, I started to go back to London. How the hell am I going to go back to London? Um, and so I lived, you know, it was, it was just, it was just a, um, an exercise of navigating goals. You know, this is what I want to do. Okay, what do I need to do to achieve that? And so I, that's the goal there. And I've worked backwards. Right, well, I'll do that and that. There's little wins there. And the little wins kind of, they boost you a lot. Mm. Um, you know, and like I said a minute ago, you know, my, my rock bottom became the foundations of which, you know, I've rebuilt, you know, the house which has become my life. And, um, um, that was it. You know, I think I've got, you know, I offered a job as a chauffeur with a, with a company in London, um, driving the rich and famous and, you know, hired help for the palaces at one point and, um, for the Royal Muse. And, um, I remember I was in these people's personal space and, um, more, you know, more so than some of their families and stuff. And, and I was like, what gives these people they get up and go? What, what makes them tick? And I just became a sponge. I was like, do you know what? I'm going to just fake it till you make it sort of thing. Um, and, um, and so I used to cherry pick attributes from different clients I had in the car, regardless of what they were. But the, you know, the life I was living you know, on, the, on the outside of that job, I was living in a caravan, you know, in a field, you know, well, in someone's back garden big enough to be a field. And the only luxury of that caravan was like it was plumbed. I could flush the toilet and stuff. And, um, you know, but it, it was home. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was someone I could go to sleep at night um, and and so on. And, and I just decided one day um, back in like 2014, I think it was, I said, you know, any opportunity I get, I don't, I don't care what it is. I'm, I'm just going to take it to say yes. Um, you know, and so... During those years, you know, I you know I qualified as a scuba diver in Egypt, you know, as, you know, with a with a military charity called Depth Therapy, and um, sort of qualified as a paddy scuba diver. And then I learned to fly a plane not long afterwards. And then I spent the whole of 2015 um, training to become part of a four man crew to row unsupported across the Atlantic Ocean. You know, I didn't I didn't get selected, but um, oh, wow. I made it to the final That's five. Amazing. Yeah, I didn't know you did that. That's five. mental. <laughs> why not yeah it's amazing <laughs> but oh it's, it's, it was great but that's become my greatest achievement I've, even today regardless of whatever i achieve you know in the future that that row the selection process and not getting selected has become my greatest achievement because i learned more about myself and what i'm actually capable of when i put my mind mm -hmm. to something um then i've i have certainly the 10 years i was in the army and certainly the time afterwards but Mm -hmm. um and that's from that what i got told you haven't been selected um i uh thanks thanks lucy um and um that's what we're cycling. you know rather than rather than look at it as a negative thing um and i mean there are plenty of people telling me what's the point dan you'll never get it maybe they're right but you know my oh attitude my God, they're not right no my <laughs> attitude was well this is what i'm doing in my life 
what you're doing yours is so fantastic. Come on, let me know. And yeah. um, and um, funny enough, no one can answer it. No, no one can give me an answer. So um, I've got some really good challenges that you can do, by the way, with Rupees. We do like some amazing, like different like rides, and it's like with like families that have been like bereaved with road crashes, like all of yeah. this stuff. Need to get you. This is like yeah, definitely really yeah. Excited. Yeah, it needs to be so good. It's plans, um, but like, do you know what? And after I got the news about the road, I was like, well, I need some else. I've got a bike. Right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into cycling, and and so cycling became something I I trained myself to do. I couldn't afford a coach or anything, um, and um, so I just used the internet and researched everything uh, from nutrition to training. And then, you know, it's no surprise, no, it's no, no spoiler alerts now, but, you know, I got selected in to, to compete in the Invictus Games um, mm. 2018, which, became a, which was a two-year goal. Um, and, you know, if it wasn't for COVID, I'd be in America right now doing the Race Across America, but doing that next year. So, <laughs> so Dan, that's, I mean, that's fantastic. You know, just the point you're making there, which is a superb one, around small incremental goal setting, to becoming bigger goal setting, but just small wins aggregated over days and days to become bigger wins. And to, to the yeah. point where, like you say, you're trialing for a, a row across the Atlantic or you're trialing for yeah, the Invictus Games, but it's, it, it starts with the small things and, and ends up with the big things. But the power, of, the, the power of, of goal setting and having that focus is, 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 is absolutely key. But just to, just to pan slightly, and before we move on, Victoria, your men, your mental challenges were were sort of slightly different. Um, and yeah. in, that, in that video, just talking about sort of the power of forgiveness and, and forgiving him to release you, it, would you mind just talking a little bit about, about around that? Yeah, of course. I think um, it's actually so interesting to hear from Dan just then about talking about like goal setting and like having goals. And I feel like for me, I mean, maybe it was the opposite, whereas more where it was more of a kind of like daily goal thing perhaps but like at the beginning I think like the thing that helped me so much and I think the the thing that helped me with the, like the forgiveness was more um like just feeling so relaxed about everything <laughs> and I think like for me I just was like the bit in terms of my mental health the bit that was hardest was leaving the rehabilitation like hospital setting like six months in and then having to then adapt to life, like with two walking sticks, like walking really badly, like falling over, like every few steps, like that, will, that that's what was hard for me. But I think, um, yeah, I didn't do so much like goal setting and stuff. I, I guess I, I, I wanted to get back to work. Um, I wanted to um, get back to living in London. Like those were the main things. But um, yeah, the, the kind of, um, Goal setting, I didn't do like to this, yeah, to, to, to that extent. I think it, yeah, I think it's so good that you did that because I think it probably would have been helpful for me, but I think it was almost helpful for me to not do it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so just, just before we move on, Lucy just asked, did you have any ongoing community rehab? So, did, did you have any rehab in the community? Yeah, I did. So, uh, yeah, so six months, so after my crash, six months after that, I moved back to my mum's house and, um, that's when I finished my inpatient rehab, moved back to my mum's house and I got given um, some like hydrotherapy at the local hydrotherapy pool. Um, and I had like a good 10 sessions and also like 
the physio there was amazing she like does like conferences and like things like that and she was like super 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 good um but the problem is it's like it's the NHS and unless it's like you doing hydrotherapy after your knee replacement and you've got like specific like goals that you're going to reach like whereas for me it was more like for me it's more of a kind of like maintenance thing and like swimming and keeping fit is for me just like making sure my body keeps working um I mean I feel like I kind of uh qualify still for hydrotherapy on the NHS but ultimately they would just have to keep giving me sessions like every day of the week so (laughs) it stops after like a couple of months So Victoria, you mentioned swimming actually, and you mentioned goal setting. So you did, we're going to come on to Dan's um, achievements in a second, but you last year, if I'm right in saying this, swam the channel. Um, as, as part of a team effort, as part of as a team part effort. Of it, but still, I would yeah. never be able to do So just walk us through, walk us through that challenge, because that's a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. Well, it was, yeah, so it was um, September last year, um, and it was to raise money for London's Air Ambulance um and like I actually can't remember like how the idea came about but I think it was like the year like earlier that year or possibly late the year before like kind of um yeah late 2018 uh but uh yeah this year was like yes like we're thinking maybe doing some kind of a you know uh like channel swim kind of thing like Bill's mentioned it and Bill is um one of the paramedics that was there the day that I got run over and, and saved my life, essentially. I was like, yeah, I guess I'd be up for that. I'd be doing like a bit of swimming. Well, it was kind of like, I've been doing like a, a bit of swimming. <laughs> Not, like nothing like channel swim, ready swimming. Um, and uh, so, yes, yeah, so I kind of like agreed to sign up to it. And then like spent like last year like early so we're kind of like yes like everyone like we had like a group of us there were 12 of us doing it and you have six people per boat so you have like two teams and the six people per team and the plan is that you take an hour um swimming and then the next person swaps in like per team um so we had like our training goals and like we had things to do and then in like june last year like three months before the swim, we were doing, we were going to Dover and like doing some like proper like practices. And actually Dover's quite intense, um, like really quite intense. Like there was, I went like for day, like it's a kind of like practice swim. And then I went for the day that was the kind of, um, cause you have to qualify to do a channel swim. So you have to do a, I think an hour and a half. If you're doing the relay, you have to do an hour and a half swim in below 16 degree water all in one go which doesn't sound like that much but actually like it is so intense like it's so cold (laughs) and and also it was like an unusually I think like choppy day so I was like there was points actually where I was we had to like swim between these two poles that were like parallel with the beach and I was swimming and I was just like staying still because I was like swimming against against the tide um but yeah, no, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was, um, I wouldn't do it again in a hurry. It was like a very intense experience for me. <laughs> I think the, the main thing is that we, um, yeah, we did it in September. We started at midnight because it got delayed. We meant to do it earlier that week. And then it got delayed because of uh, some hurricanes in the States. 
and then we had to um, postpone it to like a day after that we said we were going to do it. And um, we ended up starting at midnight, which meant getting to Dover at 10 p.m. And then lots of faffing around that. Midnight, the first swimmer go, which is the strongest swimmer in the team. And then I went at 5 a.m. after having like sat up all night, like prepping. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, it was not good. I had like, my first swim was like essentially just like hyperventilating <laughs> in seawater. Then came back off, like sat on the boat for a bit. Had like a cup of tea and some biscuits and things like that. And then um, had a little sleep. Then I did the second one. It was like quite sunny and it was really nice. And um, I'd calmed down a bit by then. I think I, I think the, the first one was just like way too much pressure. Like I was just feeling so stressed. Also, I was watching like all these grown men that come out, like have come out of the water who do ultra marathons, like in their spare time as like hobbies, oh. like almost crying. <laughs> Like they were almost crying and I was just like watching them come out like <laughs> I've got to go in now. So um yeah, it was a bit stressful. But um yeah, then the second swim that was around eleven AM was so good and it kind of felt like that's how I wanted to do the channel swim. So I felt really um felt like I'd redeem myself and uh I felt really um lucky also that I've been able to do it with Bill he'd saved my life in 2014 like it was so special to do it together and also we were like on the same team but both by far the worst swimmers <laughs> like he's not good I'm not good either <laughs> you, made it. you made it which is the main thing which is yeah that's the main thing yeah literally it's like that's all that matters you made it absolutely we did so make it so just looking at uh, Facebook Live, Emily Payne was just saying uh, she uh, she thinks that goal setting is the difference between NHS and military rehab. But so, so Dan, from your perspective, what did you learn through some of your failures? Because like I said, it hasn't always been success. Um, and I think everyone who who pushes themselves in into some of these amazing goals has to taste failure. What, what have you learned about yourself through through failure? Um. What have I learned with failure? Um, that every single situation you face, uh, there's always something to be learned. So regardless of the outcome, whether it's a negative outcome or not, there's always something to learn uh, and apply to, you know, to whatever you do, how, 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 however you do it next time. So um, I suppose focus on the things that you, that you can control rather than what you can't. So um that's actually a fundamental thing i i do all the time anyway so um you know certainly with the situations going on at the minute you know everyone's in the same boat but i can't control what's going on so what i can't control isn't isn't really worth you know the mental capacity of of, of worrying about it and i think through failure um you know trying to achieve something or to to achieve to achieve a to achieve a goal um do you know what I mean? If 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 somebody tells you this is the only way to do it, um, well, it's not. Um, there's that quote by uh, I can't remember what it is um, about the guy that designed the light bulb. Um, Edward, Ed, Ed, Edward B. Yeah, and this is why it took a thousand. No, wait, don't, don't put that into the the final recording. It's already out there now. It's already out there. <laughs> um, 
I just got to quickly Google. <laughs> uh, might be wrong. In said, I just found uh, yeah, a thousand ways of how not to do it. So, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Absolutely. So, 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 Dan, just, just sort of focusing in slightly on the, on the Invictus Games, because that was a, an amazing experience. Um, and, and just getting your perspective, just, just before we do, I'm just going to play a little video from the, Invict from the Invictus Games, um, just to show everyone. Um, Edison, Edison. Thomas yeah. Edison. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hold your nose and swallow, yeah. Fritz and Fritz sauce. And sauce. Here goes. Oh, yeah. uh, I know I was right, it was dog food. That's quite nice, that. Oh no, it's got an apple taste. <laughs> I can taste the bum hole. Is there some lips and eyelids in there? <laughs> A what, sorry? Mm. That's amazing. Mm. Mm. It's good to know that our Team UK are enjoying a salty golden gay time. <laughs> salty gay time. I hope it hasn't got something else in it. I'd like another gay time, actually. Oh, you have actually got a yeah. little bit of gay time in your beard. They smell a little bit sock like. That's oh. nice, that is. Mm. I think it'll be the first and last time I eat chicken crimping. Oh, yeah. My mouth's that dry, my lips start to stick to my teeth. Beef rings. Beef hoops, I'm going to say. Beef holes. <laughs> I should really grow up. Looks like a brown suppository. I think it's soap, shower gel. Clinker, I'll do it in there. I love a clinker. No, thanks. It's rats. I like it. Get that down your neck. <laughs> oh, Tim. Oh, this, this is what I want my gold medal in. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, wow. Are you got an end date? Wow, I Oh, I love that video. I love that video so much. <laughs> so much. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Dan, how was it in the Invictus Games 2018? Just describe the experience. Uh, do you know what? I think because I spent two years, it was a two year thing that was to, to get that. And it asked in the video, you know, if it only takes 72 people and I think 4,000 people applied for it. So I think just that sort of responsibility in itself, knowing that, that I was able to go and compete and represent my country uh, on an international platform. But um, it's an amazing way to see, well, Sydney anyway. It was an amazing experience to be part of. And I remember uh, actually uh, getting the phone call to say, you know, congratulations, you know, you've been... You've been selected. There was an email, sorry. You've been selected for uh, to represent Team UK at the Invictus Games, and it never, it never really, um, it never really hit me until the day of the official team announcement. Um, we got off the coach uh, onto Horse Guards Parade, um, and it was May two thousand and eighteen. And I got out, and it hit me all at once, and I got a little bit like nostalgic. A little bit teary-eyed, if you like, because the last time I was really on Horse Guards Parade, you know, for something, was the day before my accident happened, the day before I lost my arm. And and I, I'd always said that um, the Invictus Games for me is going to be that's that's my that's my that's my line in the sand, if you like. That's that's me shutting a door on that part of my life and focusing on the rest of it because. As cliche as it sounds, I look at you've got to look at your life as a story. You can't move on to the next chapter if you're still rewriting and rereading the previous one. 
Um, and I, you know, I got that sort of thing really from, of all things, watching only fools and horses. Um, I said, I don't want to be an Uncle Albert. I don't want every, I don't want every story I ever tell. I don't want to be just known as Dan, who was once in the military, or, or every story I ever tell, or, you know, during the army or, or during this. Whilst I've had some amazing experiences, and and the military has contributed a massive, massive part, that, you know, to my life. It doesn't contribute to it anymore. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know, I'm not paid by the military anymore. It doesn't do anything for me other than having stories and stuff. And you know, I don't want to go through life as being just somebody that was once in the military. And it's you know, there's a lot more to me. I've got a lot more to offer the world than that. At the same time, I'm not like turning my back on it or ignoring it at all. Um, but yeah, it was a very humbling, humbling experience that day of the announcement and. I think, do you know what, there's nothing more fulfilling in life than achieving a goal that you've actually set out for, but at the same time running parallel with that even. And, as, you know, let's use the row as an example here. Um, even though I didn't get selected for the row, I tried my absolute hardest and my, I committed 110% to that. And that's why it's my greatest achievement, because I never gave up. And even if you don't get selected for something that's out of your control, at least you can hold your head high and say, well, you know, I try my best. That's um, so healthy. I just feel like I just in awe of you. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> like, it's I'm in awe of, I'm awe of your, your swim. I can't swim in a paddling pool, to be honest. So, um, yeah, that's an amazing no, it's so good. That's the amazing. channel was an amazing thing. An amazing okay. thing. Um, so, yeah, so my experience of the Games was one of utter hum- being utterly humbled um massive achievement and just uh i suppose in not every not every ounce of the phrase but a weight off of my shoulders or shoulder but um um yeah it was it was amazing it was amazing really? i didn't i didn't win any medals there but that's not why i went to do it I, and that, that's not what the games are about anyway um it's all part of people's okay. individual recovery stories and you know the invictus games i suppose i used as as kind of um the end of my recovery you, you, you never finish a recovery journey do you know what i mean you're always recovering um but i suppose i i do i, I want to be in a in a position now where i'm in a i'm in a position to give back um you know i've had a lot of help from military organized charities and stuff um and i think you know i, I want to give back um, and you're, I'm going to rope you into my my stuff. <laughs> you want to get back? We'll chat later. <laughs> yeah. So let's 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 do that. Let's let's just focus on what you guys are doing now because I think I find it absolutely fascinating to what you guys are actually doing at the moment. Um, and so, Victoria, what 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 are you involved with at the moment? What's your current line? Oh, so I started working. Um, it was funny because I, so I got run over. I was obviously in the hospital for ages. I, I used to work in advertising, like when I got run over. And then I went back to that job and they were amazing. Like they were so, like I feel like it was a family. They did go under and I think perhaps they were like too nice. <laughs> but um, I'm in touch with so many of those people still and they were fantastic. And I got a job um, working at a bank 
which um which was still when I had like not very good leg and um I think that was me like pushing myself so I was like okay I'm gonna work full-time yes I've lost my leg yes I've got all these like horrible other injuries but um I'm gonna do it and actually it was too much and, and too hard for me but at the same time I was doing that I was campaigning um the road that I had my crash on um that you know th- th- there'd been a woman who was killed like a few years before there'd been another woman that like had been seriously injured and like the this that was at like, the junction a bit of a stretch of road um since my crash happened in fact there had been two women that had lost their legs on that same stretch of road and it was like what is going on here like this is just not okay why are like these lovely women losing their legs on this stretch of road and it's only because of like the air ambulance and like the capability of the NHS that they're still alive like we should all be there really um so I got like more involved in campaigning and I joined um I did a few speeches like when some other cyclists had been killed um at some different protests like from like 2016 onwards um and I met um at one that was um in Kensington and Chelsea um this woman who was pregnant that had been killed on the bridge so horrible like this lovely teacher and um I met um Cynthia who um is the chairperson of the charity Ropies that I now work for. But she, um, her daughter, Alex, was killed um, near London Wall. I think it was in 2000 and, I think it was 2007 or, yeah, 2007. And um, got killed by a lorry and she had to like fight so hard. Like she had to pay for like the police like reports she is like such a um transformer and like such a proper individual campaigner like she's changed so much in terms of like how lorries operate in london because she like bought shares in the company that ran her daughter over and she spoke at their annual meeting and was like this is what's happened and you need to like sort yourselves out because <laughs> you're killing people on the roads like you're not like taking this seriously you're thinking about this in terms of money and you're not um understanding the impact you're having and you're not prioritizing road safety um so she's done so much but I met her um at this at this speech and um started doing a bit of freelance work for Ropeace and then um as of two years ago was employed um working on a project and now I'm there, like head of like campaigns and communication and policy, like all that stuff. So I'm like Mrs. Roy Safety, essentially. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, no, it's really good, and um, it's it's an amazing charity. Like it's been around for like the reason it started was in 1992 because a woman called Brigitte Chaudhry, her son, a motorcycle crash actually also got killed when a driver just went through a red light just went through a red light and this was before the death by careless driving charge existed so there was nothing really to charge that driver on 
And I, I think he just got like a fine and like just nothing else happened to him. And it's like the charity that I work for now, it, like Ropies, they just like focus quite a lot on like what happens after a crash. Like what, like what is the justice system going to do to you? Like what like penalties are going to be involved? Like all of that stuff, like what support you can get from the police, all of those things. Um, and I think I'm quite... Um, inspired by all of that I think it like I had a fantastic experience with the police they were like amazing for me but then there actually were looking back some things that are typical which is where originally the driver was charged with causing serious injury by dangerous driving like there was enough evidence for it to be that because he was doing like so much stupid stuff but then it was like okay the fence think that actually they'll accept the guilty plea for careless driving we'll go with that and it's like okay well I don't really know so we'll do that and this happens all the time and there's so many issues with the justice system and that is what contributes to not enough being done about preventing the crashes in the first place like it's all so interlinked and I think there's not that much connect actually like even what we're doing now like we're talking about like trauma and experiences but um it's all completely interlinked. Like what are people's experiences when a crash happens and they've survived and they're trying to get justice, what happens then? And like the worst thing is um, bereaved families. Mm. It's horrible. <laughs> it's absolutely horrible. I've spoken to like a couple today, in fact, and like like one of them, like sister killed in a crash. The driver got a 10 year driving ban, which actually is a bit unusual because it's quite long. Now he's appealing it. They're going to protest, like all of this stuff. It's just, yeah, it's very sickening. I think we're in like, Daniel agree, like we're in like a, a weird place where it's like, oh, it's an accident. It was bound to happen. Like nothing could have been done to prevent it. That's not how you think about it. <laughs> oh. You know, it like, it's, it's like, it's a crash. It's something that um, could have been prevented. It's because society is not dealing with it seriously i think you're right that the justice system for the most part is a little bit of a joke certainly where what, what happened with yours if you don't mind me asking. i have no idea i have no idea um, well that's ridiculous in itself i where i um all i know is is um i was in the outside lane of the dual carriageway mm -hmm. i was pardon Oh, um, so my girlfriend's just come home. Um, um, I was in the outside lane of a dual carriageway and I slammed my brakes on going around the corner. I don't know why. I don't know what happened. Um, yeah, but there's no cameras on that stretch of road at all whatsoever. Um, so it's kind of just really... <clears throat> it's a lot of investigation. And that's like, a, that's like a serious issue in itself, which is that like, if it was a, 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 a grievous bodily harm or something like that, it would be investigated properly. Whereas I think there's so many people that we speak to that have been like horribly, horribly injured. And unless it falls into the kind of like the bit of the police which investigates traffic collisions, which is fatal or like mine where they think you're going to die. If it falls out of that and you might be like horribly, horribly injured, they don't investigate it properly, like they just don't. 
And it's I, really, really powerful work, actually, Victoria, I think. And, and like you said, yeah. I think you need some really strong advocates like yourself to, to really to really continue the narrative, not, not just the narrative, but just the just 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 the truth seeking and just make sure that people get people people get not only justice, but also they 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 get the families get a due, a due course of 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 uh, of justice absolutely yeah and, and support also the other thing is just like it's just being like kept up to date with like what's happening with the police and it's also being like redirected to people that can actually support you like i feel so blessed like i had like london's air ambulance like frank and then i had my family who were like just amazing and my work were also amazing most people don't have that i'm very well aware that most people <laughs> don't have that so there needs to be like proper signposting when something like this happens to get people the support that they need. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. So, Dan, what 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 do you find yourself doing uh, these days? What's your line of work? Uh, Jack of all trades and master of them all. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I um, so I work full time in, uh, in in project management for for local government and uh, sort of in, in a support element, uh, which I quite like doing i don't think i want to be a project manager um but um um running parallel with that on the other side of that is when i took up cycling i decided to jump on social media and sort of track my progress through uh through instagram and um twice i was doing that um i got contacted by a, a modeling agency um and long story short uh, they 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 offered me a contract and and that's what I started doing. And I did uh, my first job was a Lloyd's Bank and Mental Health Awareness advert back in 2018. And um, off the back of that, literally, I got um, asked to go and meet a television production company. Um, and uh, that became a TV series called Naked Beach on Channel 4. That is all about body confidence and helping people with a very low opinion of themselves. Um, um, accept themselves for who they are and not comparable to, you know, what sort of plastered all over media and all these perfect, perfect airbrush images. Um, so, and that's what I did. And I got back from doing that. I took a year off of work. I was made redundant from my, my, my project management role at the time. So I just took a year off of a full-time commitment and to just throw myself into sort of doing that. And, and then I started back in that year, finished in September last year. And um, and yeah, I'm so I'm in I'm in uh, I'm in project management full time now. Um, and obviously, with COVID nineteen as it is, that the the, uh, the 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 modelling and media has kind of uh, stopped because you can't really do it socially distanced. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's quite good. It's a um, I just found that I really enjoy being in the creative environment, and I, and I like having the divide. Do you know what I mean? So. Not a lot of people in the office where I work um, know what I do when I'm not in the office. So it's very much, um, it's very much, um, I don't know, it sounds a bit uh, strange to say, but Batman and Bruce Wayne sort of thing. So um, we do now. <laughs> um, uh, so... Yeah, it's quite good. I just, I just really, I love being in a, in a creative environment. I love being sort of 
with people but not having to worry about toning it down if you like so yeah yeah so so dan my next question to you really would be if, if anyone was watching this uh, going through a similar circumstance uh, retrospectively or you, indeed even now what would your words to them be if, if they were going undergoing some rehabilitation from a from from a life-changing injury what what words of encouragement might you want to give them words of encouragement um but don't look at this as just a negative situation. Do you know what I mean? There's there, there are things to be learned in every situation. I said earlier, didn't I? There's, there's things to be learned in every situation we find ourselves in. Um, talk, like really reach out and talk, regardless of who it is. Uh, it'll make you feel a whole lot better. And uh, rather than bottling it up, you bottle it up. It's like a bottle of Coke. And you shake it enough times and it'll blow off. Um, I suppose really figure out like who you want to be. Um, you know, the thing with certainly as far as amputations go, it's a very uh, well any any traumatic any traumatic injury as far you know as they go, it's it's going to change your life. Like how your life was before is is is, is not going to be the same. You can try and hold on to it if you like, but I think you've got to accept that it's a it's a it's a fork in the road if you like. Um, so just figure out who you really want to be, like. Not like what you want to do with a job or anything, but who you want to be as a person and just go for it. Um, people will tell you, pe- people will tell you not to do it or you shouldn't do it or whatnot. Just don't, don't listen to them, like literally, uh, unless they've been through it um, and they've done it all perfectly. No one's done anything perfectly. Um, just ignore them. Um, and yeah, I suppose take every opportunity that's presented to you, even like literally, even if you don't know how to do it, like just say yes. And then just, the internet's a wonderful place of learning everything you need to know about. Like just learn the basics of something. Learn the basics is all you really need. Um, uh, I suppose the final one, the final bit of advice I'd probably give is, and everyone does this, I used to do it, I'm sure people listening have done it as well, is don't compare yourself to other people. Like literally, no one. Um, it will kill any joy uh, uh, or any, and any wins that you've made. Um, um, compare yourself to who you were yesterday. Yeah. You know what I mean? So That's powerful, Dan. Yeah. That's powerful, mate. It really is powerful. Um, so just a few final questions before we wrap up. So Louise just asked on Facebook Live, uh, Victoria, from a medical and nursing point of view, um, is there anything that could have made your experience left less difficult in hospital? Um, oh, um, that's so nice to ask. Um, I I had actually the most amazing experience in hospital. I think um, I was just in so much pain, and it was so um, I was so unwell. <laughs> so it's hard to kind of like describe what would have made that better. I think um, okay, there's two things in terms of intensive care when I was hallucinating horribly and it was like, I actually think about it still now and it's actually like trauma support groups, I think on the issue. Um, I think um, an understanding that that person that you're dealing with is, is hallucinating horribly. And the only thing that made me feel better when was when I was convinced that like the man opposite me was trying to kill me. <laughs> My dad was like, don't worry, we're going to take care of it. And I was like, 
okay and then like that made me feel so much better so I think like from that perspective just like go along a little bit of the hallucination and just say that you've got it in hand I think is like one bit of advice um and then the second thing the the only bad nurse that I had was the one um when I just moved to the trauma ward and she'd been I think she was maybe like a little bit um disenfranchised with the whole thing and um uninspired by nursing I think she'd been doing it a long time and maybe you know she she'd seen it all before but I just I was moving to a private room and my family put up lots of um like pictures and like cards from people that had um you know well wishes for example and um she was kind of like well uh the blue tag is going to be a problem so like take it down and also they put me on a um bed that was like one of those inflatable mattress things and like at one point I was kind of like sunk into it like this and I was like dad I think I think there's something wrong with the bed like it really hurts like my whole upper back hurts and it turns out it was very deflated but like um, oh I'm sorry I'm, I'm echoing um yeah the the whole back was like very deflated it took quite a lot of like arguing to like get that sorted out and I think um I think the only thing is just to like listen to your patients I think if they're hallucinating go along with it if they're <laughs> if they're compass <laughs> mattress <laughs> and they're saying the mattress is uh failing then don't believe them Dan I'm so sorry I think your your thing or, or whoever's like unmuted might be um causing some feedback yeah we're getting a bit of feedback there I'm not entirely sure where that's coming from whether it's um can you everyone on your um on your thing there we go yeah okay cool so i i think so so it's just gone half past seven um it's been fantastic just to just to speak with you both actually and just get your individual perspectives and and i really feel like just getting that personal narrative from you both is is, is just really powerful so just just as we finish off um I got sort of Dan's perspectives earlier, Victoria, around what he would say to someone going through a very similar situation. Just from your perspective, is there any sort of words of encouragement and or insight? I know you talked about forgiveness earlier, and that was seemed struck me as being really powerful. But any 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 any, any thoughts from final thoughts from you? Oh, um, it's very difficult. I think I think everyone's really different. I think. Um, Okay, I think the main thing I would, and I wish I'd done this a bit more myself, but just to um, reach out to other people and um, whether it's like your family and friends to talk about how you're feeling or to talk, you know, with them. There's lots of, depending on like what trauma you've been through, if it's like a head injury or if it's a spinal injury, if it's a road crush or whatever, there's lots of help available. Um, And I think, I'm so sorry. I was muted throughout that whole time. Should I start oh, again? <laughs> it's fine. That's fine. I think it's just a little bit of a microphone issue, but that's that's. It was me. Good. It was me muted. <laughs> no, it's fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I went on the run there, but I'll, I'll start it again. Um, I think uh, the most important thing is um, to like reach out for help, and whether that's like through your family and friends or depending on like what type of trauma you've had whatever it is 
There are so, I didn't realize this until like quite recently, but there's so many organizations that exist to help with different types of trauma. So like if you've had a brain injury, there's like, there's so many places that you can access help from. Spinal cord injury, same thing. Amputation, like specific stuff to do with road crashes, which is where I work. Like there's so many, there's so many like different types of organizations that you can access help from. And I think the main thing is to um, seek help from them. I, I feel lucky that I didn't suffer with, like, with any like post-traumatic stress or anything like that. But of course I found it difficult. But um, yeah, I think just reach out and like do a bit of Googling, I think. Um, if you're in a space where you're like not too sure, you know, like just Google your injury. There's loads of things that come up is what I would suggest. Fantastic. No, I definitely what you're saying there actually about reaching out for help. Um, what I have found actually is, and as and as harsh as it might sound, it's not meant at all. But you can't help anyone that doesn't want to be helped. Yeah. Um, so it's all well and good having the help there, but if the person's not willing or not in the, in a uh, uh, frame of mind yet to to admit they need help, um, it's it, it's kind of like knocking on the door with nobody at home. Do you know what I mean? Sort of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we're in a little bit of an issue with sound just in this final five minutes, which is just a bit of a, bit, bit of a shame. I think we're just getting a bit of feedback, which is a little bit unfortunate. But um, I think what we'll do is we'll, we will leave it there, um, which is fantastic. I know we've been going for an hour and a half, but I just wanted to, from the bottom of my heart, um, just thank both of you, really, because... I know we've spoken both at the World Extreme Medicine Conference in years gone past, but um, as, as together with the people who've been listening and watching this, the, the organic story you guys both tell and just the honesty and transparency, it just really, I think really is just both touching to me and everyone listening to it. So my, my, my thanks to both of you. Thanks for having, thank you very much. Thanks for having, thank you, Owen. Thanks like for having you. us. Listen, pleasure, absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Um, so, guys, just before you leave, um, just bear in mind we've got the 16th Wemcast live event this Friday at 7:30 with Will Duffin. Uh, he's going to be speaking to Anna McNuff. Anna McNuff is a, an amazing adventurer. Um, she's uh, she's also uh, got lots of tips and tricks about how to add adventure into your life. Uh, she's a she's a lively character. Uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful guest. I've heard her speak before. Uh, please do tune in. It's another free session uh, this Friday at 7.30 for the 16th Wemcast Live events. So do tune in to Facebook and or Zoom uh, and you can find the links on social media. Uh, please do share your feedback for this session, um, both on our social media page. And if you're on Zoom, there should be a, a survey monkey. Uh, just can pop up after you after you leave the room, but please do 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 leave feedback because we're all always interested in, in getting better. But again, my thanks to to the guests. Uh, they're both superb speakers and absolute legends. So thank you guys. Oh, thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Dorian. Thanks a lot. Nice to meet you, Victoria. Yeah, no, yeah, likewise.